up where we left off with our last episode about Susan Sontag. Um, I hope you enjoy what we have for you. What was she doing in 1967? Well, she was... um. 1967 was like the height of, or the beginning of the Vietnam War, I think. Okay, seems right. Right? Yeah. I always get mm-hmm. the war. Lyndon B. Johnson. Yeah. So she was arrested <laughs> for blocking the door of the draft center. <laughs> A major crime in the United States. Major crime. <laughs> major crime. And so she wrote this essay. I forget where it's published, but it it's, um, its name. It's What's Happening in America. And so the most important part of this essay Mm -hmm. is this following quote, just a one-liner. The white race is the cancer of human history. (laughs) I like where this is going. And that's like the, that's the one line that everyone remembers from this essay. And she got (laughs) so much shit for it. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) of course. And so. How dare uh, someone criticize the white race? I know. There's another thing that she's going to be criticized later on that... I know what it is. 9-11. Yeah. (laughs) She did it. She did it. She did it. Um, So, and this is... Susan's someone that doesn't apologize for who she is, even though she isn't the most fond of herself. But she would later on apologize for that Interesting. And um, she would, like... Should try to explain to the people like it's more of a metaphor than like an underlying sentiment. Um, you guys, what was just... the line again? Can you just read <laughs> the white race is the cancer of human history? Cancer. Okay, and like people are like, Why are you saying cancer? You know, it was just a lot of just, mm-hmm. and also like you're criticizing the white race, of course, you're gonna get some <laughs> how dare you push back for that. Um, and I feel like that's an important thing to note for her. Yeah. Um, interesting that she uses cancer though because yeah because like her later work would kind of refute that yeah metaphorical use I think yeah and I think I think she is someone that does reflect mm-hmm. a lot and I think her 1967 self is vastly different from whatever year she does get cancer okay and makes, makes her sense. think um um <laughs> sorry okay <laughs> no go no we just gotten away from your point you were trying to make a point was i i don't remember <laughs> um <laughs> my point was actually called the white race the cancer of human history um which i thought was like <laughs> i chuckled when i read it <laughs> i think that should be the title of this. <laughs> We'll get more listens. Yeah. <laughs> um, I can't wait. <laughs> Homegirl started dazzling in filmmaking. Ooh. Yeah, she's she made a couple of films. Um, she made a film. I think her first film. Her first film was named. Sorry, I don't know German, so it's Brother Carl. Oh. The translation. Um, I mean, I do know German because I know what it says without writing <laughs> the English translation down. Yeah, um, it's like Bruder Carl. Yes, thank you. It's <laughs> it's. I just don't have that throat in me. Um, I it, don't either. It's all fake. <laughs> and so, be, <laughs> so this film was based on her relationship that she had with some woman, mm-hmm. Carletta, something like that. I think. 
okay. she's important, but I felt like she was important enough for me to talk about her and spend time on her. Um, but it was important enough for Susan to make a film about her. <laughs> yeah. um, and so the film got, um, the film was released at the Keynes Festival. And oh, yeah. Susan was sad because she just broke up with this woman. And so she was just not her like, Cheerful. This is, you know, there's something a little bit. I don't know how to react to this because I'm like, okay, so I have my film at this, you know, famous film festival. Am I going to be upset about this little relation? (laughs) Like Susan. Because look at the big picture. (laughs) But no, it works out because she runs into this woman. Um, Uh her name is Nicole Stephane. Okay. Who was an actress, um, but became a producer. I think after she had like a terrible accident Um, because Nicole was like who is a sad woman I'm gonna go up to her (laughs) is she French probably I don't remember for some Uh, reason just a French person saying who is this sad woman let me go up to her Um, it just seems very in line with them yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah it is and Nicole basically takes Susan under her wing um they get into a relationship Mm -hmm. but because I'm like a very motherly relationship okay and Nicole like bathes her feeds her clothes (laughs) her um wow houses her you know Uh, (laughs) something I didn't really include but Susan wasn't the best at taking care of herself um I feel like she was very disconnected with her body um like she'd go on days without showering. Like she could smoke all these cigarettes. Um, she would often like take speed to like finish <laughs> work. Like she would like, I didn't include this as this book that she wrote because it never got published, but she like was awake for like a couple of days on speed to finish this essay. <laughs> oh, and like no, the no. person read it was like, I can't publish this. Oh no. Um, but this is like later on in her life where it kind of still is going to shit. But um, how, how is she doing financially? Is she like, no no <laughs> no she's not doing... <laughs> she's not she's not doing well okay. i mean like what writer at this time is doing well right or ever uh, ever <laughs> but she's other people take care of her okay <laughs> and they'll gladly take care of her um mm-hmm. but financially she's not doing well um so like so on top of not financially doing well she's not like taking care of herself or she doesn't she's like out of her body right that makes sense Um, so there's all these like interwoven mm -hmm. kind of yeah factors of yeah not doing so well and like people i don't know why i'm sharing this but there's people there's someone that's quoted like one of her close friends or whatever someone that's close there was like i just don't understand how you could be 30 or 40 or whatever and not know when your period is coming like Susan was just not aware of that but I'm like there's a lot of things that affect your periods yeah like if she wasn't the most healthiest person (laughs) your periods are not going to be consistent for many of reasons so I was like okay she was depressed kind of yeah yes (laughs) that's the right word thank you Drew (laughs) Um, just sounds a little yeah yeah and so she's dabbling in filmmaking great um she meets Nicole great but their relationship doesn't last forever. So we know that. Um, in 1967, she releases Style of the Radical Will, which I think you were trying to quote earlier. Okay. <laughs> for Oscar Wilde. 
It's also another collection of essays and uh-huh. um, people call it a very impressive es- a book um, collection. Um, she discusses like film, literature, politics, and like pornography. Um, Lawrence M. Bensky of the New York Times praises style, the radical will as an important book and wrote, it should be remembered that Miss Sontag has now written four of the most valuable intellectual documents of the past 10 years against mm-hmm. interpretation. Notes on camp. Against aesthetic. interpretation. Yes. That's the, I think that's the one I was thinking about. Okay. Cause that's just a, okay. Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, the aesthetics of silence and a trip to Hano- Hanoi and mm-hmm. the world in which she chose until she chosen to live. She continues to be the best there is. Um, okay so like people are loving her right um so she's doing well in that sense but um we're back to our homeboy david we forgot about him for a bit <laughs> I, did, I, did. <laughs> I have to admit i forgot about you david. i i also forgot about david and then he comes up in the book and i was like oh here we go <laughs> so in 1971 um david does one year at Amherst, mm, but then drops. Place. Yeah, oh, but then he drops. Yeah, he didn't out. think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, David ends up doing a lot of things during this time. Mm-hmm. He travels the. <laughs> I I wrote home. He's doing a lot on this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh boy. He he um goes to Paris for a bit. Mm, seems to some, be a theme. Yeah, he goes to Mexico. <laughs> then after Paris, he goes to Mexico for a year. Ted learn- Cruising. Yeah, learning Spanish <laughs> and like learning some like I don't remember what he's learning. And then he moves back uh-huh. to be moves back to New York City and becomes a taxi driver. Oh, for a bit for a couple of years. Okay, it's a good um, good job at that point. Actually, probably. Yeah. Not that and, it um, isn't now, but probably. <laughs> don't get paid as much yeah um <laughs> and so we kind of realize david just raised himself um one of david's friends noted how like susan was grooming david to become her companion i have another quote from someone that knew them um their name is yoram kanuk okay. i don't know i don't sorry <laughs> for the butchering of the name must be canadian yeah probably <laughs> um, <laughs> um <laughs> Susan was only 19 when he was born. Um, yeah. 40 when he 40 when he became of age. They were so close in age that their friendship evolved into some kind of companionship. And as he grew older, they came to resemble like a couple more than a parent and a child. Um, mm-hmm. She was not a mother and he was not a son. Um, and like their relationship definitely struck other people as um, odd. Unique. Unique, <laughs> different, um, and like it was like impossible for Susan to imagine her son dropping out and becoming a taxi driver. It's just, it yeah. just so. I wonder if she had seen um, the movie, the taxi driver. Yeah, and she was like concerned because I would be. I think. Oh yeah, if you see um, what's his name, the actor <laughs> De Niro. De Niro <laughs> going through it, turning into a little monster. <laughs> sure. Um, <laughs> But in 1975, yeah, he gets he gets into Princeton, so he's going oh. back to school. Okay, why is he just flexing on us? <laughs> he's like, I did my little stunt. <laughs> I was a taxi driver, now I'm going to Princeton. <laughs> but <laughs> Homie was also doing a lot again. Um, he had to get a physical done 
to go to print like all Did schools we have are to go to physical yeah oh thank you for reminding me i think we had to get our shots and maybe that includes a physical i feel like i, I remember I mean, going i remember yeah. going to the doctors and be like can you fill this out please <laughs> i don't remember the details but you do often have to get physicals yeah, sorry yeah. this has nothing to do with no anything, but no really. um he had to get a physical, but he like refused to schedule it. Okay. And Susan was like, fine, I'll do it. And while she does it, she's like, I guess I should schedule one for myself too. Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. <laughs> <laughs> and then she finds out that she has stage four breast cancer. Oof. Yeah. No, that's not good. No. No, no, no. When this is 1975. 75, okay. So she would have been 42. Young. At this time, young, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um she ends up having four surgeries to remove it. Um she didn't have health care, health insurance. Um she didn't have enough a lot of money, but she had a lot of people who cared for her mm-hmm. and like provided the money. Um Okay. Like we see today with mutual aid, essentially taking the place of any sort of uh, welfare. Yeah. And so, (laughs) yeah. So, yeah, that's where she is in her life. Stage four cancer, eventually having four surgeries to remove it. um, Mm -hmm. But having people around her that care about her and care about her health and well-being that are willing to pay $150,000, which is probably like close uh, half a million or something something at this point yeah. right in today's dollars mm-hmm. right um gotta be a lot yep <laughs> uh, and so that's happening in yeah. 1975 um in 1977 she publishes her essay on photography okay um which is like f- people call it impressive and fun um i've also read that i read that in Lindsay's. <laughs> professors or classes i can't remember what it's about though i'm so sorry no it's okay like three years ago i know i'm old we're both old i can't remember what i read i can't remember words um (laughs) and so in this essay she basically has like hundreds of examples that she illustrates the complicated Mm -hmm. relationship between a metaphor and the thing that is like distorts and like perverts and creates new meanings i guess um and um, she even writes like photography is an inventory of mortality. Um, and for some reason she comes identify with a negative view of photography, even though that's not, she loves <laughs> photography, um, which is like interesting. Cause it's like, you know. Yeah. Um, well, she's in an interesting position, I think, because she's writing these academically significant essays outside of the academy. Mm-hmm. Um, and for, I mean, theoretically, a broader audience than mm-hmm. maybe somewhat like a academic would be writing. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure a lot of what she said was heavily misinterpreted. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Wrongly interpreted by a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and it like also kind of ruined her relationship with a lot of photographers that she had with. <laughs> um, oh, no. <laughs> I will... Um, it was a powerful book, powerful enough to wreck Susan's with friendships with photographers like Peter Hunjar and Irving, Irving um, Penn. Powerful okay. enough for a critic to make Susan sound like a highbrow counterpart of the Ku 
Ku Klux Klan. What? What? Yeah. What does that even mean? I don't know. It continues to say she doesn't racist against photography. I guess she doesn't see photography photographs as an individual work of art in the same way that bigots doesn't think of blacks or Italians or Jews as individual people. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. This is like kind of like the backlash that Susan gets for a lot of her things. It's like, but would you say this is about like barfs and like Benjamin, right? (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm just confused. I, I don't just, even know. <laughs> exactly. When I read that, I was like, that doesn't even make sense. Like, Who are I these mean, critics? <laughs> I I guess I understand like what they're trying to say is like she's trying, she makes generalizations about photography that can't account for the particularities of a particular but, work, but it doesn't, but, comparing it to race doesn't. Make sense. But also doesn't all essays do that? Essentially all arguments you're kind of like general arguments on like general topics or to make your point anyways this is just like a couple (laughs) it's just funny I know I was just (laughs) um and so there's that in her life um but it becomes a staple and like it's still a staple like 30 years like photographers still this day use this essay for their own work and how it reflects them so yeah it's yeah, still important. Yeah, sure. And it's still included in syllabi. Yeah. That have to do with photography in yeah. some sort of way. So Susan wins. Susan, <laughs> Susan's just winning. Just not in the way that I think she should be. I think oh, she should yeah. win more. <laughs> more winning. <laughs> yes. Um, and so in 1978, so two years later, she writes mm-hmm. and publishes illness as a metaphor which we were talking about this is like the first iteration of it um that's this is i've read that most recently i have a fresher idea of what she's saying (laughs) good i haven't read good because i haven't read that one okay um so basically it's like challenges like this victim blaming um this idea and like yes yeah and the language that softens to like describe diseases and how people are affected by them um i think it's such um an important intervention i guess like even today um we read it i read it with the beginning of the pandemic the covid19 pandemic (laughs) (laughs) for those in the future who don't know what the pandemic is yeah (laughs) it's Um, the pandemic once once we're in our 12th (laughs) pandemic there'll be some confusion but (laughs) but I think it's an important intervention even now because right at the beginning of the pandemic at least we were talking about we still do like people on the front lines of the Mm -hmm. pandemic and people um battling this disease essentially Mm -hmm. whereas I think sorry I (laughs) no no this is helpful no, this is helpful. <laughs> I've just taken over. But um, where, where she points out that those are all metaphors and that the um, the reality of experiencing a disease isn't war. Mm-hmm. It's not something that you've entered into. Um, the idea is that the reality of disease um, doesn't quite match up with these metaphors. Mm-hmm. So like having a disease isn't like fighting a war there are some like very significant 
differences that are kind of um, mystified or kind of erased by using these metaphors. But they're mm-hmm. so con- they're so pervasive and common. That yeah, we, we still use them today. Like people saying, you know, battle cancer, mm-hmm. um, battle any s- sort of disease, and the implication is that if you die from that disease that you've lost the battle and like yeah you know that you weren't strong enough in some way or yeah. another and exactly like you were saying um with that sort of um anti-victim blaming sentence yeah. that she kind of introduces into the discourse yeah, yeah. that was very helpful thank you oh, um, i'm sure the essay is freely available at oh, this yeah. point so people go I'm ahead sure. and google yeah <laughs> you'll find it Um, yeah and (laughs) when she published this essay I think a lot of not a lot of a couple of people around her kind of critiqued her for it because she like dissociated herself from her own potential responsibility for getting cancer herself um oh you mean like in terms of smoking and smoking and not being the most health healthy in quotation marks person um (laughs) and like instead created a story about why she had been saved or whatever i don't really know um there's just people critiquing to critique right it's like yeah the idea is like oh well because i think i think part of the argument in her essay is that like disease is just like an unfortunate Mm -hmm. occurrence in life essentially and that you know it's not something that someone chooses to have obviously Mm-hmm. And so I, it sounds like there was some sort of rebuttal in the sense that disease people actually can have some sort of control over which diseases they have, which I don't know. Yeah, it's con- not I, the strongest argument. <laughs> I'm not a doctor. Not the most convincing. <laughs> I'm not a doctor. I don't know. Yeah, but um, I think, but it did. I think the essay did help people um, who were yeah. struggling. Um, as to read from the book, I'm sorry, but not sorry. Mm-hmm. As old theories about cancer were swept away by therapeutic advances, a revolution of seeing, the symbolic Sontag helped people. Those who, as a result, got better treatment and survived, and those who, though they could not be saved, could at least die without being made to feel ashamed of having wasted their lives. I think a lot of her work does help people understand themselves yeah. in a way like notes on camp, um, this illness as metaphor. Um, yeah. There's something powerful about that. Yeah. Well, she's taking these kind of like marginal experiences or marginal um, identities even mm-hmm. kind of making them less marginal in a way. <laughs> yeah. <of. laughs> you know, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Um, to go into her next collection of mm. essays um in the 1980s she published under the sign of saturn um this one's dedicated to walter benjamin <gasps> yep <laughs> no comment. um and so <laughs> um it's this collection has a collection of seven essays um uh-huh. All essay, all of these essays were originally published in the New York Times, New York Review of Books, except for okay. one of the essays, um, which was a print, originally published in the New Yorker. Um, okay. Has a meditation, 
this this collection in particular, I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher all these names, but they're just so hard. Um, has meditations on Antonin Artois, Elias Canetti, Lenny Reifenstahl, Walter oh, Benjamin, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Hans Jurgen Cyberg's film about Hitler, along with brief eulogies for Paul Glademan and Roland Barthes. Interesting. What an interesting group of people. <laughs> She's just working with everyone. Yes. She's like, yeah. I'm a right about you. Yeah. What did you say the book was called? Sorry. Under the Sign of Saturn. Okay. Um, um, I don't really have much to say about that, but except for like, it was her third collection of criticisms. Um, I think, I forget who stated this quote, um, but someone was like, the power of Susan Sontag's enthusiasm why can't why is that word so hard to say right now <laughs> was such this was such that she became the world's most authoritative uh -huh. blubber i'm so blubber. sorry blubber yeah because <laughs> i think she could just go on and on and talk about things uh, okay, okay. <laughs> um her admiration for a book uh -huh. or a film a dance a painting could use it could ease an artist out of respectable obscurity and place him and her in the company of the great discuss exhibited translated and celebrated so okay she had that power um well yeah yeah um <laughs> we also learn she becomes friends with stephen coke k-o-c-k uh -huh. no so k-o-c-h um yeah she like told him at one point like i refuse to live alone i won't live alone rather than live i ra rather than live alone i could live and would live with any person in this room chosen at chosen at random so um <laughs> With that being said, like her fear of being alone um, made it hard for David to become independent, which- um, She was kind of like a little bit codependent. Yeah. 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 Not a little bit, she was. Uh, just but it, like it didn't, <laughs> it didn't matter who it was with. She just needed someone. And I think David being her son um was readily available mm -hmm. yeah yeah but um they weren't good for each other um <laughs> <laughs> i think more darn it, darn it. who would have <laughs> thought who saw that coming um not to read another quote but oh. they just it's just people like just quotes. people just state it state it better than i could ever could so like what's the point i know um, <laughs> <laughs> The world around Susan was nasty. She had always been attracted to exceptional people, but her friends agreed that she was never bitchy or particularly interested in gossip. Singrid, which is like one of her friends, I think, mm -hmm. pointed out that Susan was an elitist, interested in people of high achievement rather than a snob, interested in people of high birth or income. Still, every night's dinner provided an opportunity for new guests, along with Susan and David, to savage those who had sat at the same table the night before. If they talked about another person, it it was always in negative terms or gossip terms. Mm. Deutsch said, "Yeah, basically that." So I think David, in particular, kind of brought out this energy with her from okay. her. And yeah. I feel like, does that make sense? Yeah, like he kind of encouraged her to have yeah. this kind of almost self-destructive. Yeah, of, yeah, and like much like Susan. David also starts creating a new persona and like of himself and trying to invent himself himself and um he like 
he's quoted like i've decided no more mr nice guy so like (laughs) (laughs) so you see you're like excuse me (laughs) (laughs) yeah essentially yeah um oh that's not good no 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 (laughs) no more mr nice guy oh dear (laughs) (laughs) That I know. <laughs> no, I mean clearly, clearly, you could tell this energy isn't good. But um, so in 1982, <laughs> mm-hmm. so in 1982, a New York pro solidarity rally, rally, which if I remember correctly, it was like pro communist rally. And um, for okay. most of this time, <laughs> Susan was like anti capitalist, pro communism. But she has met over the years has gone on. She has met people and spoken people and like even housed them in her home from Cuba, Vietnam, like all these places that had like a communism that's like run by a dictator in a way, um, <laughs> yeah. um, who express how they were negatively affected by con- communism, right? Um, which are narratives that we often don't really hear, right? Cause we want to believe communism is this best thing, but then- well, you know, some of us, I think a lot of people have heard about the ills of communists. No, yeah, but like at this yeah. time in 1982, <laughs> yeah, we got Reagan or whatever. Yeah. Um, so she spoke <laughs> at this rally and she said, People on the left, like herself, have willingly or unwillingly told a lot of lies. And she was like booed and shouted at for saying that. Okay. Because um, they're like, How dare you? like talk about ill communism like that and like how dare you yeah okay well i i think i understand now where it's like she there's this point in time where it's clear that the ussr is kind of faltering and reagan is well i think reagan was president in 1982 i'm not exactly sure i think you're I believe so. yeah because that's when the americans are taking place <laughs> yeah so so i think reagan (laughs) is president so it's like there's this period of like hyper consolidation around capitalism as the victor almost Uh of the cold war Uh and so leftists naturally (laughs) are gonna be hyper you know uh in reaction are gonna be hyper defensive of Mm -hmm. their ideas yeah susan steps in and is like wait 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 maybe there's some middle ground here yeah and like because everyone's like you were one of us now you're not and she's Mm -hmm. like that's not what I'm trying to convey I'm just saying (laughs) yeah (laughs) Uh, she just has a way yeah Yeah. sorry no no, no, you go no you go well it just sounds like she's like I am a leftist but I also don't believe all this crap that you guys are saying (laughs) I've met with because I've met with all these people who have seen the failures of communism so it's hard for me to back up this um okay idea right Mm -hmm. but um and like at that point I think a lot of people thought this is like I don't say end her career but like (laughs) it was that fear but then Gorbachev gets elected and like people forget about this so like it wasn't even like it was like a stressor for like a couple of months and then like none of it none of that what she said matters Mm-hmm. But, um, the whole cold war was like just having these little like panics every few months <laughs> yeah <laughs> yes exactly <That's> nice <laughs> yeah um, in, in comparison yeah um, 
<laughs> anyway. Uh, anyways. Um, Bonjour. Bonjour. In, 19- in 1986, um, her mother dies of lung cancer. Okay, um, Mattel, what's her name? Mild- Mildred. 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 Mildred, thank you. And so, I know I haven't mentioned a lot about Judith or Mildred. Yes. Um, it was because mostly because um, she just wasn't close to them. Like, a lot of her friends in New York didn't know she had a sister. Okay. Um, Do we have any idea about what Judith, what kind of life she was? Uh, from what I know at this point, Judith was, like, married um, and lives in Hawaii. Thus, yeah. like, her mother and stepfather moves to Hawaii with them. Um, yeah. Like, mm-hmm. Susan, went, Susan went to the wedding. Um, they just weren't close at this point um yeah it seems like judith might have been leading a more normative yeah normatively oriented lifestyle yeah and like judith didn't know that susan was like bisexual until like she saw it in like some paper um so it was just she just wasn't yeah yeah so it was like that kind of relationship where like Uh susan's friends didn't know about judith and judith didn't know much about susan um okay but yeah, so she goes to Hawaii to spend like the last couple of days with her mother and oh, sister. Okay. Um, I think there's just something so beautiful about how the strength of human humans and like at their last moments, like Mildred didn't die until she could be in the hospital with Susan and Judith together. Yeah. Um, I know there's something, something so beautiful about that, like she should have yeah. been taken to the hospital earlier, but she waited <laughs> for Susan to come. Yeah. And for her, for them, for the three of them to be together. Um, and I think at, there's, I forget who she was talking to, but Susan's like, my mom, my mother did, I mean, like, hug me. And I think that hurt her. Um, well, yeah. Hug her, like, hug her in the last, in the, her last moments. But mm-hmm. then her friend was like, but she waited for you to show up. Yeah. So obviously there was some. Yeah. Sort of. But I think, yeah, but I think for Susan, like that lack of affection from her mother, yeah, well, I her mean, whole life, and then that last moment, it's a complicated, right? Like I'm on the yeah, side of the been, I mean, might, Well, it's like she might have held on just to make a point that she wasn't gonna <laughs> hug Susan. You know, I mean, you know, hate motivates people just as much as love. Yeah, and sometimes it's still powerful. Think- yeah. I don't think Mildred hated Susan. Yeah. I just she just wasn't fit to be a mother. Um, yeah. Uh, especially to Susan, it sounds like. To someone like Susan who's not doesn't want to conform exactly to Yeah. All of that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. But um and I think after her mother died, mm-hmm. it was kind of like a weight lifted from her shoulders um not to be cliche but but you can notice it in her writings where her writings became more personal and like more accessible and mixing like revelation and all this thing so which is also interesting where this one person who you've admired your whole life who didn't love you the way a mother should love you but once they're gone you're you feel free in a way but yeah i mean it's it sounds like a very deep ambivalence like on one hand well i mean it's it's 
it's it's almost paradoxical it's like on one hand i really admire this person and the fact that i admire them makes it so difficult for me to you know be honest (laughs) (laughs) to them you know it's like compounding yeah compounding difficulties in a relationship where when that occurs i guess yeah so that's that um in 1989, she really, she writes AIDS and its metaphors, which is the companion, the companion book of her um, to illness as a metaphor, um, mm-hmm. which basically just extends her arguments and about metaphors that were originally attributed to cancer, but now to the AIDS crisis. Um, I didn't really have much to say about that, but like, it's another important, yeah, I mean, all of her writings are important in one way or the other. Yeah. So um, she also around this time, becomes president of the Penn American Center, um, which is like an organization that writers are a part of. Um, Okay. There was drama about it. There was just a lot of drama. And I was like, I don't know how to summarize that, but if you (laughs) want to look it up, please do. Um, (laughs) Feel free. Yeah. And so in 1989, she publishes Volcano Volcano Lover, (laughs) which becomes her best-selling novel. Um, Okay. but basically it's set, it's set in Naples, um, mm. talks about marriage, <laughs> marriage, scandal, abandonment, and her descent into poverty. So <laughs> take that as you will. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and I think this is the first time, this is around the first time where she's finally getting money. Um, oh yeah, with a best-selling novel. Novel, plus this few other things are going to happen mm-hmm. that I'm going to state back to back. Um, she gets an $800,000 contract with FSG, which I forget what it stands for, but basically this is where um, the Guggenheim guy, Rod, what's his name? Roger? Roger Strauss. Yeah. Um, Cause at one point she's like, I have no money, Rod, like Strauss. <laughs> like I just, I have no money. Like I can't yeah. live like this. Um, so he was like, fine. Here, have some money. Here, here's a contract <laughs> for like this next X amount of next books. Um, you're to get $800,000. So she gets that. Okay. She wins a Mick Oh, Ar- okay. Oh, wait. I know what FSG is now. What is it? Please. <laughs> it's a publishing company. It's called oh. Farrer Strauss and Giroux or something. Or Giroux. Homie Strauss is part of that. Homie uh, Strauss is the middle initial. <laughs> <of>. <laughs> Um, she wins a MacArthur Fellowship, um, which is congrats. Congrats! She gets <laughs> a quarter of a million dollars as well as health insurance. Thank God. Finally, <laughs> <laughs> um, which is wild because she has heard several times that she's been considered for the MacArthur Fellowships, like many mm-hmm. times, like previous years. Mm-hmm. But she had she was blackballed by the member of the board, Saul Bellow, who loathed, yeah. loathed Sontag mm-hmm. and had a long record of opposing grants to women and militant blacks, as he would say. <laughs> Saul Bellow, okay. Yep. So was, yeah, <laughs> she would have she would have gone in it earlier if it wasn't for him. Um, it's just interesting to see all these men <laughs> against Susan. Yeah. Um, but it's not surprising. It's just whatever and then she meets annie Libo- Libovitz. yes 
the famous photographer um, <laughs> and they start dating in 89 and she becomes another financial clutch for Susan. Okay. And Annie is going to be there from 89 until her death in 2004. Um, so her like last official relationship with someone. Yes. Um, okay. I'm gonna jump to this and then go back to Annie. Sorry. But um, <laughs> her first purchase with the money that she's she's receiving was to be to have an apartment um she okay. was yeah because after she was at the penthouse she went somewhere else and like there her neighbor had the fireplace going and like it just set fire oh to her like she could have died but she did it um so she wasn't like in the most stable house so she was like i'm gonna get an apartment oh, she got bad <laughs> bad <laughs> yeah um but she got she got a building known as a london terrace in chelsea so she was there from then until the day she died basically do you know what that means london terrace yeah i've never heard that i think it's just a famous building oh oh, oh, oh okay i was thinking of because i know in at least in washington dc they have apartments called like British basements or English basements or something okay. like that and it's like a basement apartment but they got oh, okay. like this name that makes it sound fancy <laughs> okay but you're saying that's not what this is no okay okay and like this is a time where Chelsea was um in the process of being Chelsea wasn't like the best neighborhood in 1989 um it was no, slowly yeah. I don't think New did New York have any best neighborhoods in the 1980s no um <laughs> no you're right <laughs> not um, as we know them but then i think her moving in mm -hmm. plus annie moving in kind of change the ambiance and like because chelsea at this time was like slowly being gentrified in a way and then moving in okay, added um, okay. another element to it um, mm -hmm. a a sort of enabling element yeah okay yeah um back to this relationship with Annie. Susan is Susan. This is why I wrote, Susan is Susan, Annie is Annie. Um, <laughs> oh no. So essentially, Annie took care of her, like most uh -huh. relationships do to, do to Susan. But um, Annie behaved towards Susan exactly as Susan behaved toward any woman who loved her less than she did. So if that gives you any context. So like, Annie loved Susan less than Susan loved Annie yeah okay annie's younger is she or is she the same age yeah i forget by i forget how old because she's still she's still with alive us. Yes. yeah okay. annie i forget how it mentions how old they are um, okay annie's 71 now um oh, so she, she was, was born around 19, the 50s yeah 1949 okay. and susan was born in 1960. 1933 oh a little to 16 year yeah okay um quite significant yeah mm -hmm. um more about susan's career at this point um i think this words it beautifully but um sontag was an individual but her career had made her something more she was a symbol of the cosmopolitan european culture under attack and she took her obligation to that culture seriously enough to place both of these existence. Susan the person and Susan and Sontag the metaphors in the line of the fire. Um, 
I don't know. I think there's something powerful about that, that she kind of, <laughs> not to be that person, but mm. she kind of becomes, not only her work is important, but she kind of becomes like camp, if that makes sense. Like there's Susan Sontag, but then there's Susan, the Susan Sontag. And I yeah. think if that makes sense. Um, you mean and, like her, her, her reputation or her personality becomes greater than the sum of her work in a yeah 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 while her work is so important too I I don't know I mean I think I think it's like I don't know it's weird it's the situation it happened with Oscar Wilde as well where he had all of this like you know literary sort of um work and then he becomes more known as this kind of like eccentric figure Mm-hmm. Even though that's not really what his life's work has been, that's how he becomes famous in a way. Yeah, and it's that kind of weird relationship where you kind yeah. of rely on that <laughs> to sustain your fame. Yeah, even though it's not really something that you are necessarily um, agreeing with in a way. Yeah, I guess. or doesn't really match your more profound thoughts yeah no yeah I agree with that mm-hmm. and like I don't know I think part of the reason I wanted to do Susan Sontag <laughs> for this was because mm-hmm. I feel like she wasn't talked enough at least not in the classes that I took even though I don't know I don't know where I'm going with this I just felt <laughs> like I know she's the bigger symbol than I realized um that's just yeah. through my own like I don't say ignorance just not my knowledge yeah. you know yeah. and well I mean I think that's oddly another part of that sort of um, relationship between fame and especially for someone who's writing writing um, is that once you become famous and best-selling in a certain way the academy starts to discredit you Mm -hmm. your work because you're too mainstream yeah (laughs) or they perceive you as being mainstream they kind of they kind of um, just um, un, un, uncritically, that's not the word that I'm trying to use, but it's the thrust of what I'm trying They kind of just uncritically accept the idea that is presented by mass media or mass culture in a certain way, is that yeah. these people aren't serious. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like what you said. Um... I mean, I don't know if that's what you were trying to say, but like, that she wasn't presented as being all that serious in your classes or or I just feel like important. I feel like I just I feel like I would have I should have heard more about her than the extent that I did compared to these other men <laughs> that I hear all okay. the time especially in my visual studies courses but um yeah I also feel like there has been like she's been given life again since 2019 with the help of like the Met Gala and like the publication of this biography that happened the same year I think so there was like a reprise um yeah especially for people who are not in the in the academy um yeah and I have to say I think even I know when we did read um uh illness as a metaphor Mm -hmm. uh, (laughs) right (laughs) I forgot the title illness as a metaphor when we did read that for 
in my um, class, my professor, Gus Stadler, said <laughs> that Susan Sontag was one of his favorite writers. Um, oh, that's exciting. <laughs> yeah. Even though, I mean, it's just, it's not like, I don't know. It's not inconceivable, but I think it would be maybe odd to see a whole course about Susan Sontag in a mm. in a certain in, in a certain context of like where you're not studying media or culture yeah yeah you yeah. know what I mean no yeah I agree yeah and like I don't know even though she does become this symbol with like her iconic white streak and like how that <laughs> yes you want to know the story about why she got that white streak oh she got it I thought it was just there so here, so for her first round of chemotherapy, when she got breast cancer, stage four breast cancer, instead of mm. losing her hair, she, her hair turned white. Okay. And so when she visited her mom in Hawaii before she passed, because I think she visited once before she passed, mm-hmm. um, her mom was like, we have to go to the salon. <clears throat> and so the salon, like the hairdresser was like, well, we're going to dye everything black except for that one white streak. And so that just became her look since then. Um, oh. And that has become her symbol, I guess. Um, yeah. I don't know where I was going with the symbol, but. Well, whatever. yeah, I mean, the whole, the whole thing about creating new selves, new identities, hair, obviously. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. Tying back to the bigger yes. picture of Susan. Um, sorry to get off track like that, but. Um, so like. Around the mid nineties, um, her relationship with Annie kind of like was going downhill. Um, she, um, gets back in a relationship with, um, Irene. Okay. They rekindle their affair, but she hasn't really broken up, um, with Annie, Mm -hmm. but, um, however, as Susan's health is declining, um, the need to take care of Susan, all these women in her life, like, we're like, we just have to take care of you. So like joined forces to like help her. Mm-hmm. so the power that Susan has um and she doesn't realize that she has that power either which is very Susan of her <laughs> um and so in 1989 1998 um her cancer comes back after 25 years uh-huh. um she has uterine scarcoma okay um and the tumor was the size of a grapefruit so pretty big yeah and so at the wake of her second cancer, her relationship with Annie improved. Um, basically, Annie would take care of Susan and her illness, and Susan would, like, nudge Annie to, like, go to museums and stuff like that. So they became very motherly to each other um, in the ways okay. that they knew how to do that. Um, mm-hmm. And so with that being said, this is, like, around the... Because she had three strikes of cancer as that she knew it as she quoted like the third time is out so I think this is around the second time that she got it got it and it like she gets she gets another third type of cancer um Mm -hmm. but she knew like her time was going to be up soon so she like just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote um okay so in 1999 she writes in America um which won the U.S. National Book for Fiction. Um, okay, it's a novel. Yes, it's her final novel that she writes. Okay. Um, she writes one more thing after it, but um, 
another meditation essays of meditations or whatever Mm -hmm. and so this book is based on a true story of a polish actress named helena modjeska but marina in the book um her arrival in california in 1876 and her ascendancy to american stardom which i think is quite quite similar to her mom's um life trajectory Uh, i didn't get into much of her mom's trajectory but like yeah it's quite similar in that sense um so it's interesting about this book the final scene is a single paragraph and it's 27 (laughs) pages long (laughs) oh no (laughs) it's like um i think that's like the ending of ulysses (laughs) oh no um (laughs) and so people like occasionally read it as a rant um and like to be fair like that part of the book was written while she was like on a lot of painkillers because of her cancer so but um she does write god knew how weak she was but forget this is about marina marina so um god knew god knew how weak she was but forgave her because she was she tried so hard trying a little too hard um and I think that's her kind of reflecting on herself where um kind of injecting herself into that um a bit which is kind of sad um do we know how in touch was she with religion I don't know if the biography no yeah into that at all she she is Jewish but she wasn't raised Jewish like she didn't step into synagogue until like her late 20s um okay that's like that's like the extent of it um but did she continue to go no synagogue no (laughs) okay so she just stepped in one and was like that's enough (laughs) oh this is cute this is cute okay (laughs) okay okay Um, and even like I guess then spiritually was she more atheistic or i don't know i really don't know okay i because there's no signs of where she was not atheist but there's no sign that she was not not atheist yeah i mean it's a difficult susan's difficult (laughs) difficult. i mean even everyone's kind of everyone's um relationship to that yeah. is complex so. <laughs> yeah um, <laughs> yeah and so there's certain parts of this book where some guy sorry I should remember his name kind of mm-hmm. uh, not kind of he accuses her of plagiarism and so <laughs> what would being what would it be to be an author without being accused of plagiarism, plagiarism <laughs> I know and um her <laughs> Her response is, all of us who deal with real characters in history transcribe and adapt original sources in the original domain. I use these sources and I've completely transformed them. I have these books. I looked at these books. There's a larger argument to be made for that all literature is a series of references and illusions. So take that with what you will. Okay. (laughs) I mean, that's how authors for God knows how long have been defending yep appropriating source material (laughs) and here we are Mm -hmm. the moment we've been waiting for (laughs) i can't wait 9-11 happens oh no (laughs) 
Not to laugh. 9-11's not a funny situation. It's no. just this whole thing. The reaction bad. to it has some comical elements. <laughs> yes. So 9-11 happens. I think yes. she was, I don't remember where she was in this. I don't, she wasn't in the States. She was in Sara Javero. Sarah oh, Sarah Havo. Thank you. Is yes. that in Bulgaria? Yeah. Bosnia? Bosnia. Sorry, Eastern Europe. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I also pronounce it in a very Spanish way. <laughs> Sarah Gennaro. Um, She spends a lot, I didn't mention this, but she spends a lot of her later years there, doing a lot of work there. Okay. Um, they, I mean, there were some wars going on as I understand yeah. it. Yeah. She been to a lot of places where think actions are happening. Um, okay, <laughs> um, there's like something I'm going to end with that explains um, where who she is um, to mm. close it off, but I don't want to give it away. Okay. But she spends a lot of time there, so that's where she was during 9-11. Um, her friend Sharon Delano at the New Yorker asked her to write something in response to 9-11, and she writes um, <laughs> three paragraphs. Um, Oh, just three paragraphs. Just three paragraphs. Okay. These paragraphs are more incendiary. <laughs> sorry, I'm sorry that I'm mispronouncing that word. No, no, anything... it's pronounced. Okay, thank God. <laughs> than anything she's ever published. Um, oh, dear Lord. Before I read anything of this quote, um, I'll say that they did cut off her opening sentence that she wrote. <laughs> and her opening sentence was, to this appalled, sad American and New Yorker, America has never seemed farther than from an acknowledgement of reality than it's been in the face of the last Tuesday monstrous does dose of reality or something like that. Okay. So she does write that, mm-hmm. but they cut it off. All right. They're like, um, <laughs> these people can't handle this. Yeah. Um, yeah. But they kept everything else. Um, so I'm not going to read. <laughs> I'm not going to read the three paragraphs, but I'm going to read the lines I underlined. Um, yeah. You could find People who are listening, you can find this anywhere, I believe. Oh, yeah. Um, so in her first paragraph, Midway, she writes, where is, the nog- where, where is the acknowledgement that this is not a cowardly attack on civilization or liberty or human humanity or the free world, but an attack on the world's self-proclaimed superpower undertaken as a consequence of specific American alliances and actions? How many citizens are aware of the ongoing American bombing of Iraq? And if the word cowardly is to be used, it might be more aptly applied to those who kill from beyond the range of retaliation high in the sky than than to those willing to die themselves in order to kill others. To jump to the very last paragraph, let's by all means grieve together, but let's not be stupid together. A few shreds of historical awareness awareness might help us understand that understand what has just happened and what may continue to happen. Our country is strong, we are told again and again. I, for one, don't find this entirely consoling. Who doubts that America is strong? But that's not all America has to be. <laughs> there you go. I mean, oh, I kind of got like goosebumps listening to that, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> what did you did you have some commentary is she wrong though <laughs> um, <laughs> it's like you know how there are like three crosses <laughs> Nicole's the one next to Susan's 
but is she wrong? wrong? No. <laughs> oh dear lord. And um, I don't know how to try this lightly. Um, well, I don't think you have to. No, <laughs> it's been a while since it happened, has it? <laughs> There's um, some distance. Because we were both really young when 9-11 happened, so obviously. I, uh, I don't, we don't. But, I, don't, I don't claim to know what you remember, but I don't remember. I remember. I just remember my mom crying. That's all I remember. Okay, um, so you have some memory. Yeah. Anyways, that's not the point. The point is, mm-hmm. yes, nine eleven was tragic, right? Yeah. There's no. There's no denying that. No. But I think Susan does have a point in the sense of like, we kind of, not that she's not saying that we should have saw it coming, but in a way, like, this wasn't a cowardly attack as she says right um no yeah it's a consequence of americans united states of america's action on other countries right this is a response it's a cause and effect um but of course she said it around time where people are still mourning and sees it as an attack yeah i mean this is an attack i don't you know what i'm trying to say um it's just people get very different it was volatile. It was a volatile time to be saying something like this. Yeah. Even but also, the- go ahead. Sorry. No, you go. I mean, it's just, it's understandable in a sense, this kind of tendency to draw something like 9 11 out of history and to turn it into this kind of um, almost mythic event where it's like, you know, where, where the people who, uh, orchestrated this attack on the World Trade Centers and the Pentagon and they I think they were trying to fly into the Capitol and ended up in Steubenville but I think that to turn that into an act of pure evil and to withdraw it from these sort of historical and political circumstances Mm. is an understandable act because it's like of course we don't want to think of ourselves as being in some way responsible Mm -hmm. or in any way responsible for this Mm -hmm. um and it's easier to unite people um when there isn't that sort of um, context um so i i mean as someone who's kind of distant from 9-11 uh in various ways i understand even where people we're coming from and being mad about what Susan is saying. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, yeah. but like you're saying also it's, and Susan is right. Susan is right. Um, nothing is outside of history. Yeah. Nothing is outside of any political context. So yeah. what did she say? People are <laughs> being childish or <laughs> naive. Let us not, deceive ourselves <laughs> oh let's not be stupid or whatever let's not be yeah. stupid yeah like let's yeah. grieve together but let's not be stupid together yes, like let's yeah. like let's re- let's look at the facts <laughs> exactly and so as obviously we know people were shocked <laughs> yeah. angered that she would say anything like that um like someone from the new republic which i think is a conservative magazine or journal was the like, New Republic? Yeah. I mean, I think it's actually thought of as a liberal. Okay. I just, I don't know. I just hear the word Republic and I just, I just thought that. <laughs> well, yeah, <I'm> <laughs> Sorry. Sorry That's to right. the New Republic. Um, That's okay. What did they say? That's what matters. 
I have a couple of people that it's only two people I'm going to quote. Um, what do some Osama bin Laden, Saddam Hussein, and Son- Susan Sontag have in common? <laughs> They're all dead. Um, well, now, but I'm just dead. With <laughs> um, someone at the Reagan Knight Heritage Foundation writes, Susan Sontag should not, should not be permitted to speak in honorable intellectual circuit circles ever again. Um, cancel culture. Yep, <laughs> cancel culture before I was cancel culture. Um, a column, columnist for the New York Post, which is a conservative yeah. newspaper here in New York. Um, I wanted to walk barefoot on broken glass across the Brooklyn Bridge up to that despicable mm-hmm. woman's apartment, grab her by the neck, drag her down to ground zero and force her to say that to the firefighters. Oh gosh. Like, how is that any better? You're... <laughs> it's not. It's just mean exactly um <laughs> so that's that yeah um we're almost done um in 2002 so two years before she dies um you see ucla announced that they acquired sontag's archive um which is like so many books it's like some like number of like 800 volumes yeah oh the sale also included her library estimated at twenty thousand books um jeez and so where was she keeping them well that's why she got the london terrace because it's big enough um (laughs) um, to keep all these books but um so essentially it would go for 1.1 million dollars okay and so (laughs) basically the move the um the money that she used was basically to help David get an apartment. Um, and I think that's like kind of, she wasn't happy about it. Um, she didn't want to do that. Um, like her friend Sharon Delano, the one from the New Yorker writes, says psychologically, that's a very difficult thing to do. And she did it to help David to get the apartment. She was very upset. She didn't want to do it. Um, why didn't she want, I, I don't quite understand why she didn't. I think she didn't want to sell her things. Um, oh, okay. But also, like, David wasn't the nice person. <laughs> okay. Um, like, she called him a bully many times, and he would stay later on. So, like, so like she did it because, of course, she's going to take care of her son. Mm-hmm. But she didn't, <laughs> she didn't want to. She didn't want to. <laughs> okay, well. You know. Sorry, I'm not very articulate about that idea, but um, hey, well, it's hard to be articulate about that. <laughs> so it's a head turner. And I think she wanted to please David in a way. Sorry, I'm just thinking about it. Um, I wonder if she she probably knew at this point that she was going to die soon. Oh yeah, she was like there are times where she's been aware. Like she when when the third part of her cancer, she was like, "This is it. Like I only have a couple of years left." And so yeah there's that okay okay i mean that's a tough situation yeah um so that's in 2002 in 2003 um she writes her last published work while she was alive Mm -hmm. um which is regarding the pains of others um and so essentially this book was a meditation of on ways of seeing and representing but um but if her references to stars sounded 
sardonic. It was not, or not only, like all forms of seeing and representing, witnessing was often pathetically ineffective. How was watching something happen, even risking one's life to write about it or taking pictures of it going to change the world, the world of arms and politics? Um, Damn. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. And so like, and so she spends a lot of time in this book, like debunking like common misconceptions around images of pain, horror, and atrocity. Um, yeah. And this work like underscores the importance, the importances of it and like undercuts that they can communicate something very much, if that makes sense. Um, it undercuts that. The hopes that they can communicate something. Oh my, it's just sad. Yeah. That in her like <laughs> last year. In her final year, she's writing. I I will share something. I don't know when you plan to um, reach the uh, denouement. Of it's right Susan after Tosh. this. <laughs> <laughs> I will also I'll, I will share a personal personal um, note, but yeah, it just seems like she was <laughs> not in a good place in her final years which is extremely upsetting. Yeah. Yeah. And I think her last final years was just her trying to finish this work, kind of, kind of having a better relationship with Annie at this point in her death, having a son like David who can be mean. And it's like, but David also has his old, like his other things going on in his life because Philip is also dying around the same time. So imagine okay. having... And David had to get surgery around the same time too. I forget for what. Mm-hmm. So it's just a lot happening. But um, so that's that in 2003. Um, sorry, I just flipped the page and this is, <laughs> I don't know why I didn't include this, but um, throughout 2003, she was like getting honors and prizes and whatever. Um, and so she, I forget, I think her assistant or someone um, yeah. was like, there's this, um, <laughs> there's this like conference happening in Bogota in Colombia. Yeah. And they're like, let's go. <laughs> um, and, but they missed translated conference from Spanish, which they thought it would be like a convention, but really it's like she was going to give a talk instead, but she didn't prepare a speech. <laughs> oh. And so her assistant and her like Spanish editor or whatever was like, you have to give a speech. What are you going to say? <laughs> But they figured this out at like, at like late at night, the night before she had to give the speech. Yeah. And they were afraid to tell her this because she's someone that wants to like carefully write what she wants to say. (laughs) And so the next morning, the day of the speech, she says to your like assistant, I'm going, I'm going to go and denounce Garcia Marquez for supporting Castro in the execution of the intellectuals. (laughs) And like, obviously... Mm. Garcia Marquez is the love of the life of Colombia, right? <laughs> mm-hmm. But, um, and so in her speech, she said, she states, I know that Gab- Gabriel Garcia Marquez is very respected in his books, widely read. He's a great writer of this country and I have great admiration for him, but it's unforgivable that he has not spoken out against the latest measures of the Cuban regime. Mm. And so instead of taking offense, Garcia Marquez um, responds with, I myself cannot calculate the number of prisoners 
dissidents and conspirators that I had helped in absolute silence get out of jail or emigrate from Cuba over no less than 20 years. That's a regime that, and so, sorry, that's a different thing. So essentially like she went there, freeballed it and was like, I'm gonna do this. And then first thing was like, you're right. Sorry, I thought that was just a fun story. Um, before we get to the before we get to the sad part that's you know um well at least at least gabrielle was like <laughs> okay you're right valid um fair enough um so in march 2004 she's diagnosed with the a difficult kind of leukemia. So this is what I, I was referencing earlier to like this, this, like this third strike you're out. So at this point she knew there is like no more for her. Um, yeah. She um, elected a bone marrow transplant to buy some time. Okay. I guess it kind of did. Um, <clears throat> so she's like on her deathbed basically at this point. Yeah. And like people are visiting her um, at one point, David, I think it was David's birthday and he just wouldn't show up. Oh, David, come on. And like, it like stressed her. Like it made her so sad. Like she was like stressed out and like Annie and her other friends were trying to distract her from that. Um, His absence, yeah. Yeah. And so she tells David um, later on um, that the most important thing I'm leaving you is my journals. There are a few things that should be taken out, taken out um but they should be published so that's why we have the trilogy of her journals because they were published by david um Mm -hmm. she eventually does she eventually dies in december 2004 december 28 2004 um and so she is buried in paris and the montparnasse okay Sorry for butchering it. Montpanas. Um, <laughs> um, it's the idea that she's like kept an eternal company with um, Sartre, Sartre, Jean Paul Sartre. Mm-hmm. However, you say his last Sartre. name. <laughs> Thank you. Ciaran Barfs and Beckett. Um, uh-huh. And at her funeral, they had two separate funerals. Like David hosted one and then Annie hosted one. I don't know why. Like they're. <laughs> but then <laughs> her sister judith so mad i know <laughs> i can imagine susan being like mm. <laughs> okay <laughs> um there's this one story about judith her sister coming to the funeral taking one of susan's fur coats and david being like <laughs> give that back and then judith just got in the car and <laughs> left <laughs> but i think for her it was like a way to keep her sister the sister that she wasn't yeah. close with but has this bond um yeah i mean at that point what's a fur coat really yeah it's nothing (laughs) at that point but she dies Mm -hmm. um i'm gonna read these last two paragraphs because i think they summarize (laughs) they summarize beautifully susan's life and i Uh can't think of a better ending and i'm sorry to the listeners for you having to hear me quote everything but whatever Mm. in politics Sontag's life showed how unstable even the biggest words, socialism, art, democracy, could be. She showed the wild fluctuations, the clashing connotations of the term America. 
She was there when the Cuban revolution began. She was there when the Berlin wall came down. She was in Hanoi under bombardment. She was in Israel for the Yom Kippur war. She was in New York when artists tried to resist the pull and tug of money and celebrity. And she was there when many gave in. She witnessed great changes in science and medicine from the shifting fortunes of Sig Sigmund Freud to the new understanding of drug and alcohol used to, used to the emergence of new psycho psychology. To divided world, she brought a divided self. But if she herself was one with her age, her greatest theme stood apart from it. Aristotle had written that metaphor consists in giving the thing a name that belongs to something else. And Sontag showed how a metaphor formed, then deformed, the self, how language could console and how it could destroy, how representation could comfort while also being obscene, why even a great, great interpreter, interpreter ought to be against interpretation. And she mm -hmm. warned against the mystification of photographs and portraits, including those of biographers. <laughs> Close book. The end. And that is life. Susan Sontag. Oh, why? Well, I thoughts. Mean, precisely. Comments. Well, I said I was going <laughs> to share a personal anecdote. Didn't, Please didn't do. I, so now I have to. We got there. I mean, that's just ethical. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but what did I? So I watched. There's a, a documentary about Susan Sontag. Mm -hmm. There may be more than one. There's at least one that I watched. And it was a while ago. I don't remember how long ago it was. But anyway, I just remember that when she was like dying, she, like she was just in denial about the fact that she was dying and was saying like, um, mm -hmm. like, I'm not ready to like, I'm not ready to die. Yeah. You know, as she's dying. Like, yeah. Actively. And I don't know, that's just kind of scarred me. And I yeah. think that they should have put a warning in the <laughs> yeah. documentary. Um, yeah, there's there's one of her friends that visited her in the hospital was like, her the friend knew, like they both knew yeah. that this was going to be the last time. But Susan even said like, oh, I'll see you later or whatever. I'll see you tomorrow or whatever. Um, and I think that just comes with the territory of dying where like a part of you know knows that this is it's it. the end yeah. it's, it's the end but you don't want to believe that this is how you go yeah i mean i like to believe that some of us will accept it yeah <laughs> it <doesn't> <laughs> <sound> <laughs> like she did i don't know and that's always kind of i mean and that's it's not to it's not to impugn her in any mm. way or to like it, it all i think the point of the documentary at least was that um her final denial was kind of a it it was proof of her high value of life or uh -huh. like, you know mm -hmm. you know no yeah which is terrifying actually <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think yeah i agree what were I you gonna say i was gonna say like she knew this was it. She's like, this is the third time I've gotten cancer and it's like mm -hmm. some rare form of leukemia. Mm -hmm. So she, a part of her knew like, this is it. So she pushed herself, but I agree. Like, you don't want to accept it. <laughs> <laughs> no. No one wants to accept that this is how you go. Um, yeah. At least for her. Yeah. I mean, it just sounds like she 
had some unfinished like she was not done oh no she definitely wasn't all done she's like i have more things to write which <laughs> is just i mean for me that's just the worst you know mm-hmm. as someone who had this idea of being able to continuously comment on what was happening around her and it's like you can't mm-hmm. like you're human uh, yeah <laughs> yeah i mean i i i think that the way that that biography finishes is at the least an adequate kind of summation of who she was which mm-hmm. in many ways was a product <laughs> she was a product of her time mm-hmm. um you know she was in the right places at the right time to be kind of a a vocal figure <laughs> yeah i like the fact that she was there for the cuban revolution she was there for the Yom Kippur war she was there mm-hmm. when the berlin wall came down she just happened to be at these places and had the words to articulate what she was saying and what mm-hmm. that means for us i don't know there's something her stars were aligning in those moments oh well, yeah it's almost like she needed she needed this world and this world needed her in some yeah. ways you know yeah <laughs> yeah that's a beautiful way to put it but <laughs> what a complicated woman wasn't she <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah well, that's very interesting, though. It gives us a lot to um, look forward to in terms of reading. <laughs> if yeah. We're going to read any Sontag. Yeah, I definitely want to check out more of her essays. Um, maybe check out one of her novels or two at some point, if I ever get through yeah. the books I have now. <laughs> I know. What do, so you had, you had her biography and the first volume of her. Yeah. So I had The Reborn, which is the first part of the essays of her journals okay. and then my main source alongside like wikipedia and mm. two podcasts um mm-hmm. was benjamin moser's um book biography okay. which is sorry i'm trying to find the proper title of the book sontag and her life her life and work okay which was published in 2019 more um, recent yeah and it was it was long mm. but i think when you have someone as complicated as susan you can't expect anything less well thank you so much for presenting the life <laughs> thank of susan Sontag to us. um thank you for listening <laughs> to me i know it was long it was just she just had so much to talk about and she's so fascinating she's such a fascinating person but i feel like that's going to happen no matter who I picked um, <laughs> for this. But. No, yeah. Honestly, I I have to say I was a bit surprised. I did not think Susan Sontag, which is a good thing. Mm-hmm. I did not think Susan Sontag was going to be the the referent of this. I surprised you, didn't I? I you did. <laughs> Pleasantly. Yeah. Well, I felt it tied in beautifully with Oscar, so. Oh, Absolutely. Yeah. We could do a whole episode on the the linkages between <laughs> these two people, but we probably won't. We'll leave that to you. <laughs> you guys listeners. can do your own homework. <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> Write an essay about it yourself. So, um, well, thank you, Nicole. Thank you, Drew. That's all. We'll see you next time. Until next time. Uh- <laughs>